When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Art of Charm podcast. I'm unfortunately a little under the weather. I'm also AJ. And I'm Johnny. It's been a crazy week this week, Johnny. Yeah. You know what? It's been a while since you have stepped foot into a classroom, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been a little while. I uh, had a chance to give a talk at UCLA, which was a lot of fun. Three things I wish I learned in college. Yeah. And how did you feel that the young men and women who were there enjoyed it? Oh, it was a lot of fun. And I wish I could actually go back to school. It definitely jogged my fond memories of college. Well, you can certainly go back and and I can come with you. Yeah. Well, we'd love to talk on your college campus. So if you're interested in having me or Johnny out to give a talk, go ahead and hit us up, aj at theartofcharm.com. This is the Art of Charm podcast, a show where we bring you actionable tips and strategies on how to better connect socially, boost your emotional intelligence, navigate social behavior, and of course, crush it in business, love, and life. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their experience, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum each and every week. Not only have we been doing this podcast with great tips, scientifically proven social strategies, and amazing guests, we've also been delivering live and online advanced emotional intelligence training programs for over a decade. If what you've learned on this show has helped you in your life, imagine what one of our tailored programs could do for you. To learn more about these advanced social skills programs, go to theartofcharm.com for more details and to sign up for our newsletter. Also, we're now doing corporate training. So if you're interested in having our team, including myself and AJ, coming to your office to work on team building, conflict resolution, and networking, send us an email at aj at theartofcharm.com. And remember, a happy office is a productive office. Take your life and career to the next level now. Just before we start the show, we'd love to take an opportunity to reach out to our audience members who work in the psychology field, either as a psychologist or therapist. We have some interesting projects we're working on, and we'd love your input. You can drop me a line at aj at theartofcharm.com. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And today, we have a Q&A episode with Laura Beal. Now, it's one thing to tell a story when it's all said and done. But what if that story is still ongoing, and there are many contemporary sources that well, contradict each other. Then it's up to you to get the facts straight and turn that into a story that is compelling. And having Laura with us today is an amazing opportunity to add investigative journalism and research to storytelling. Her investigative podcast, Dr. Death, has been downloaded over 50 million times, and it covers a crazy story about a neurosurgeon who was terrorizing and literally killing his patients. And her new podcast, Bad Batch, is currently one of the most successful podcasts on Wondery. Laura is a frequent contributor to the New York Times, Science News, Men's Health, and many other publications. In fact, she's had more than 20 years of experience writing about health and science before she added podcasting to her skill set. Bad Batch is very interesting. I mean, if I had to, if I knew what I know about stem cell research from the articles I see in my newsfeed, well, they seem to work for everything. Uh, I'm not getting them anytime soon. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. 
Welcome to the show, Laura. It's so great to have you with us today, Laura. Congratulations on the two fantastic podcasts. It's very exciting. Thank you. I know Johnny and I had a chance to enjoy both our fascinating stories, somewhat terrifying stories about modern medicine here in the U.S. And we would love to know, obviously, being a medical journalist for over 20 years, what got you into podcasting and how did you decide to make that jump? Well, that's an easy question to answer. I didn't actually go to podcasting. Podcasting came to me. I started out my career in newspapers. I worked a long time for the Dallas Morning News, but then about 10 years or so, I've been a print journalist. And I was perfectly happy being a print journalist. And then Wondery called me and asked if I would be interested in telling the story of Christopher Dunch. And I hadn't heard of Wondery. I'd heard of Christopher Dunch living here in Dallas. It's easy, but I had not heard of Wondery. So I was a little skeptical at first. Said, I'm a print journalist. Are you sure you want are you sure you want me to tell the story? Had you been listening to uh, many podcasts before that? Were you familiar with the, the platform? No, I hadn't listened to hardly any. I hadn't even listened to Serial. I hadn't listened to, once I took the job to do Dr. Death, I started listening to them, but I actually had not. So my audio experience was just as a public radio listener. And in terms of assembling that story, Dr. Death, obviously in the news, widely publicized story, but the podcast goes uh, a couple levels deeper. How did you start that journey putting together such a crazy story? Yeah, there had been there had been a lot of good coverage here locally. There had been uh, the Dallas Morning News, a local paper had covered it. D Magazine had done a big cover story on it, which is where the Dr. Death's name comes from. So I knew there had been really good reporting on it. And of course, the TV cameras covered the, the trial. But the reason I decided to do the story is because I, I felt like there were people who were complicit in the events that had not been held accountable. And that it really wasn't a story about Christopher Dunch. It was a story about our healthcare system. And so that's the story I thought had not been told. So... I wanted to spend more time, first of all, talking about who he was. But then if you'll notice, the podcast is really in two parts. Like the first part, the first parts are really about him and about the individual. But then the last part of it, as you get more and more into the story, it really becomes more of a story of the systemic failures that allowed him to keep operating. Yeah, that was certainly a part I found really fascinating was just how many people knew this was going on, but did not even try to stop it. Right. In your podcast journey, what was the sort of the underlying undertone of why so many great people in medicine, we think of people in medicine as trying to help us, would let something like that go on? You know, I can't answer that completely because I think there were a lot of different factors that allowed it to go on. I think that in some ways, some people, it was hard to tell, like it was hard to connect all the dots. That's why there were people like Randy Kirby who worked across different hospitals and he, he knew the pattern that this, that he was really, you know, terrible. I'd like to think that maybe the hospital administrators didn't realize how bad he was, that they would have just let him go. But clearly there were failures and there were failures all around. He should have been stopped at the first place he started operating. He should have been stopped in residency. You know, he, he should never have left Memphis as a neurosurgeon. So there were, there were failures at every single level. That's why at the end, I kind of compare it to a plane crash. I mean, that, you know, so many things have to go wrong at the same time. And that's, right. that's how we got 
to Dutch. And obviously, that's a terrifying story. And and here we are with the second podcast, Bad Batch, which is also a pretty terrifying story about the medicine, especially stem cell research and its push into the mainstream and how people are now starting to buy into uh, this idea of stem cell therapies, which as you explained so well in the podcast, is uncharted territory. And there's a lot of false promises and a lot of wreckage that goes along with it. Yeah, I I wanted to, after Dr. Death, I started thinking about, well, what's the next, what's another story I want to tell? And I have to say my inbox was pretty overwhelmed with lots of other really bad doctors. It was kind of depressing. Like, oh, well, have you heard about this person? And, And, but I didn't want to tell that story again you know, Dr. Death part two. I mean, like, here's another bad doctor. Um, I, I felt like the point had been made with, with Dr. Death that, you know, bad doctors get passed around and it was gratifying to me. I think it did make a difference. I heard from a lot of medical school administrators, hospital administrators, other doctors, nurses, you know, people in, in and out of operating rooms who said this really has made me rethink speaking up. I was really happy about that. And and maybe that it made a difference because nobody wants to be complicit in the next doctor death and that this could happen. So I didn't want to tell that story again. And the stem cell story had been one that I've long, long, long had an interest in. And especially Texas has very lax stem cell laws that allow clinics to proliferate. Even before Dr. Death, this had been a story that I'd been watching and and wanting to tell. And then this incident happened in our state where this bad batch of cells almost killed people. So I thought, well, there's a, you know, I needed a narrative vehicle to be able to, for people to understand and to hang the story off of. Certainly, they're not the only questionable actors out there, but, but I thought this would give me a good vehicle to tell the story. So once that happened, I thought, well, I'll look at what this particular incident says about the entire industry. And can you talk a bit about your process behind creating Bad Batch, especially because I feel like there's so much promise in stem cells and the medical community is not necessarily open to telling these stories of failure and when things are not working and having disastrous results. How are you able to to build trust and get people to open up about this story? It would be a lot easier if I could say, oh, stem cells are just they're really terrible all the time, but there's a lot of complexity to it because there is a lot of promise to it. It'd be easy if it was all just a big scam, but it's not. That made it a lot a lot more difficult to tell, to try to tease out. I wanted to ease into the story because I also didn't want to be disrespectful to all the people out there who have tried stem cells and who may have been helped by stem cells, who believe they were helped either through the placebo effect or because there might have been something in the shot that we don't understand yet. So I I didn't want to be disrespectful to them either. So I was really juggling a lot of different parts to try to, to follow through with the narrative. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. 
Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all gonna give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I had a previous life. I was working on a cancer biology PhD, so I know a little bit more than the average Joe about research and about how quickly some of these results lead to clinical trials and, and how we're trying to advance medicine. And, and sometimes, you know, people do get harmed. Uh, a lot of these trials don't end up working out. Um, so I found that to be fascinating. And I also know from being on the inside that we're not as willing as scientists, researchers to share the negative results and share the things that aren't working because exactly that. We don't want to rain on the stem cell parade because there are areas where it is impacting people. Why I wanted to tell the story is I think right now most of the information about stem cells in the retail market is coming from the people who want to sell it to them. Right. And so I wanted more a more informed discussion about stem cells. But if you listen to the podcast and you still want to try stem cells, you know, and you understand the unknowns and you understand the 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 science or the lack of science, that is that is something that you absolutely can 
can obviously do. And I'm not trying to discourage that. I'm just trying to discourage an informed discussion. Yeah. You know, I think with media in general, the narrative has been that stem cells are a silver bullet. We hear about Mm -hmm. athletes all the time getting these treatments and therapies and bouncing back. And it's pretty easy when you're in a situation medically that seems like there's no hope in sight to latch on to something as fantastic as stem cells and the hopes that it'll work. I'll tell you the thing that I think the podcast, from what I've heard, that was really most shocking to people. I mean, the the lack of science behind it, but the huge profits that are being made. I don't think that was really, that's really understood by people who are buying it. I know that the people who were hurt by the stem cells, they didn't know until way afterward that it's very cheap to make, that this is very cheap to manufacture. They thought you have to pay $5,000 a shot because it's so cutting edge and so expensive. And the profit margins, I think, were not really clear until this podcast. They were not really laid out. The money that doctors are making, the money that the companies are making, and yet how, how really cheap it is. In assembling a story like this in the podcast format uh, and getting people to agree to give you the information and open up, uh, how has that been different than doing the print journalism that you've done previously? I have to say audio interviews are are different to do. It's something I'm still learning how to do. You know, most of the time you just have one shot because it's it's harder to to do. I can't follow up on the phone. So you have to really make each interview count. And that's been something that's taken getting used to. Sometimes it means asking the same question over and over again in a different way, prodding people along. Well, you know, what did this tell me again? What this particular incident felt like? What did you see? What did it smell like? Like really those sensory details to try to draw people out. And and in audio, that's so much more important because people are telling stories in their own voice. I would assume that when it comes to recording and being on the record, so to speak, where they know that their voice in the interview is going to be used in the podcast is a little different than a piece that you write that's in your voice that pulls some quotes Do you have any techniques or tactics to get people to warm up to you and open up on the show so that they can divulge the information you're looking for to create that story? It depends who I'm interviewing. I I try to be the most careful and the most sensitive always when you're talking to patients or victims. I try to let them guide the interview. I try to let them go to the extent that they are comfortable. And if I have to push them for a detail or I have to push them for something, I try to do it very gently. I always, in every story, even a print story, I only try to include as many details as are necessary to tell the story and no further. Like I don't want to tell extra details just because of the salacious nature of them. For AJ and I, we have done so many interviews and, and things like that from doing this show and, and our careers at, at the Art of Charm. And every time that I had went back and would read something of an interview that I had done, without the context of being in that room, you know, reading it objectively, and I'm like, well, that wasn't nearly as funny as I thought it was when I was in that room. So even for these folks who are not used to this, to go back maybe to listen to the show or to read an interview that you had done, misconstrued in any sort of way. I mean, the, the, the repercussions of that can be just awful. Right. And sometimes there are things that people say 
even though they're saying it on the record, even though they know that you're talking, they're talking to a reporter, there's nothing like the underhanded about it. But I quite often have people say things that I know they would not want me to publish. And I know that they would not want me to use. And I just, I, I don't, I don't do it, even though maybe it might be fair game journalistically. I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it because they don't understand maybe some how they, how things could be misconstrued or, you know, you put this detail in there and somebody's going to take that wrong or this quote, somebody's going to take it wrong. Like, what do you mean? And I know what they mean, but I realize that people might not understand you know, something. So even even after the fact, I'm always super careful with patient interviews. And that's quite refreshing. I think in the world that we're living in now with all the technology and all these different platforms, what we tend to see a lot of are the people going for these gotcha moments or the or the the sound bite that is going to make everyone lose it. And everyone is just so focused on those things that we're losing the the human elements, we're losing the the touching Empathy, story. Yeah. And even, you know, it's funny, even listeners, though, will will do that. I understand. I, I didn't quite appreciate it, how much people would really zoom in on this. But if you've listened to Bad Batch, you know, in the first episode, one of the victims finds the other victim. She finds the other victims. And this is a seminal moment in this story, because if that had not happened, if if one of the people who was affected had not found the others and connected the dots and put together, there was something really terrible, go- a larger thing going on, these infections would have continued. You know, they would have kept on because they had occurred before this and people didn't know because they were scattered and not connected. And, and they, would have, they would have gone on for who knows how long and people might have died. And so the fact that she found these other people was really a pivotal moment that probably saved lives. And yet there were people who, who said, rightly, well, her getting information about other patients, that's a HIPAA violation. And yes, it is a HIPAA violation. And HIPAA is something we should take very seriously. And, and it's, those laws are there for a reason. And patient privacy, and I completely believe in patient privacy. But, you know, the fact that she found these other people was an actual major good event. And if it involved a HIPAA violation, I understand why you would get upset about it, but I can't believe that what she did was was wrong. And with the value that you're giving out with these cases and exposing this stuff and, and getting people to understand what was going on, you know, there's always the person who's sitting there listening so they can find any story or any quip that they can point to. I mean, I can't believe with this this story that you guys have put out and exposing all this and, and showing people what's going on. And yet, Hey, there it is. The HIPAA violation. It's like it's the, all that whole show. And that's what you got out of it. Yes. <laughs> I, yeah. Sometimes you get caught on the wrong details and obviously being a, a medical journalist and investigative journalist, what degree of skepticism around, you know, the modern healthcare system is appropriate for those who are not journalists, who are listening to these podcasts in horror, hearing these stories of, you know, things gone uh, terribly awry and people in the medical community sort of, you know, turning the other way and, and letting it go on? Yeah, I, I, I hear people who tell me, oh, I, after I listen to any of your stories, I'm afraid to go to the doctor, <laughs> which is not the takeaway to right. have. I believe I'm around a lot of doctors in my job. I can tell you that the vast 
majority of doctors by a long shot are good people who want to take care of their patients. So you should not be afraid to go to the go to the doctor and not think that your doctor doesn't have your best interest in mind. I happen to like and admire doctors. So that's not the the takeaway. I do think if there's one if there's one kind of theme of these two stories, it is about being informed as to the extent that you can. I mean, it's also a theme of patients needing to educate themselves. And maybe they're not going to go dig through PubMed, but they might listen to a podcast that would raise some cautions about this. So that's why, to me, it was an important story to tell. Yeah, I think, especially with Bad Batch, looking at the profitability that goes on in these situations that a lot of us are blind to, it's very opaque, has allowed at least the listeners, hopefully, to see that, hey, you know, just because the treatment is expensive doesn't mean that it truly was uh, very costly for them to produce and doesn't mean that it's going to get you results. And I think that's the unfortunate side of it, uh, especially when we're talking about treatments that aren't covered by our insurance. We tend to think, oh, well, it's a really expensive high-tech solution, so it's got to be something that'll work for me. Yeah, one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I was able to do in the podcast is because the retail stem cell industry is a cash-based system, and it's, it's you know private companies, private individuals. So it's been really hard to really get a sense of the money that's changing hands. And that's why I wanted to lay it all out. Because it, it's, it is hard to know. It's not like it's a, a public company. It's not like there are insurance claims that you can look at or, or any kind of actual data because it's all cash. Yeah. So I was, that, that's one of the other motivations for me to do the story. So really take a look at the money involved. All right. It's time to open up our mailbag and answer the questions that you guys have sent in. If you want your own question answered on the show, you can email us at questions at theartofcharm.com or you can find us on social media at The Art of Charm on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Let's get started. Our first question comes from Sarah. She's wondering if you have any advice on how to make people tell better stories. She says, for example, just today I was asking a coworker how her vacation was and I just got the facts treatment, the hotel she stayed in, the weather, and the trip she took. And now that I know uh, to look out for this, it seems it's just everywhere. In such a case, I wonder if you have any conversational tips that I can use to hear more about the experience, more of the emotion. Thanks. Okay, so let's use the vacation example. You know, somebody, and actually I do have some experience with getting people to try to uh, talk to me because I have a, a 16-year-old son. <laughs> and if you've, been the, if you've been the parent of a 16-year-old son, yeah, every day the question is, how was school? Fine. What did you do? Nothing. <laughs> so, uh, I don't have the, the benefit of having a 16-year-old son. However, I was a 16-year-old boy. Yeah. So, and I certainly know <laughs> those questions and those answers. So the first thing to do is get people to zero in on, on a detail that matters. Okay, I went whatever, like... What was the most bizarre thing you ate on your trip? You know, I mean, you could, depending on where they went, like, and then, and then you can get, you know, get a story or, or who was the most interesting person you met on the trip? You know, that would be a little more than just like, where did you go? So I think if you can zero in on particular details that might, that might bring up a story. Yeah, I think. 
Just a few more leading questions, as you were saying, focusing on smaller details instead of just generalities. I feel like when most of us ask, how was your trip? That's a lot different question than what was the most bizarre thing you ate or what was the most exciting moment on that trip? Those are filled with emotion that's going to allow the person to open up and stay away from the dreaded facts, 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 boring uh, storytelling that we talked about in the toolbox. Got a question in from Mark who sends this email. Hey, AJ and Johnny. Really enjoyed the Toolbox episode this month. I've started to use techniques in conversations, and I can already see a difference in the way I'm perceived. But what's even more striking is that I actually enjoy sharing things a lot more now because instead of just throwing some facts out there, I actually get to relive the experience myself a bit each time. Now I'm wondering how far I can take this, and I value your input. I manage a small marketing team, and you could probably imagine how our weekly meetings look like. Facts, facts, facts. These meetings feel like a necessary evil to discuss numbers and deadlines. It's my job to present these, and of course, it's not a personal story that I can just flesh out. But I still think that there must be a way to bring these storytelling skills into those dreaded meetings. Any tips appreciated. Thank you, Mark. So this is really rad, and I'm going to go through it, and I want to start with the first paragraph. Okay, The first paragraph is about him learning these skills and now really enjoying the opportunity to share stories and use them to his advantage and either to connect with people and to share himself and to and, and express himself. Now, this is what always happens. When you learn these skills, you learn about the emotional bids, you learn how to make sure that you're validating and then come back with a shared emotional statement. And on top of that, you understand the the subtleties and the, the little tactics in storytelling. You want to start sharing it and using it in, in every situation. So Mark has found how this stuff works for himself, has gotten, is now enjoying it. And now he's looking to find other places where he can insert it to to raise the quality of connection and, and life in general. So he sees it in his marketing meeting. And now this is great. This is the next part because we see this happen all the time when guys come through program. They start to look for other opportunities to use this stuff in a marketing meeting. And AJ, you and I have been to many marketing meetings. Yeah. And it is a lot of facts, 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 but it doesn't have to be that way. And a lot of times when you're dealing with people who are only concerned about the numbers, a lot of times those people tend to be a bit on the spectrum and a, a little bit uh, unapproachable. And because of that, it can it can make those meetings something that people dread and, and not want to have to go into. And that's certainly not going to open itself up to a productive and, and fun office, a place where people are excited uh, about going to. And of course, you want your team to be fired up in the morning to come to work. You want their emotions and attitude and enthusiasm to be at a high because why? It lifts everybody up. And so here's an opportunity for Mark, either A, to start off the meeting before we go into the facts, before we go into the numbers, let's all talk, have a minute about what everyone had done this weekend that they were really excited about and had fun with, right? That's, what is that going to do? What did we learn in the science of storytelling episode? When you tell those stories, those chemicals start to fire off and it lifts everybody's mood. Yeah, in yourself and the people hearing and listening to the stories. So now you have people who got to 
feel good, relive some of the fun moments over the weekend. And now they're going to be sharing them with the other people in the office. And now you just raised the whole atmosphere of that room. And now we can go in and start talking about the facts and go through the numbers and the, all the, the drudgery that comes with that. Exactly. I know that we start all of our meetings with exactly that, just what we're excited about that happened personally. And more importantly, Mark, is giving other people a platform to share their story first. I know when we learn these storytelling skills, we get very excited about sharing our story, but a lot of people don't just want to hear your story. Their story is the most important story. So I would encourage you to prompt other people to tell stories first, and then you can add your story and practice your storytelling techniques at work. We're in this gig economy, and a lot of the jobs that you're going to be doing, you're going to be going to, are very small teams. And the chemistry of those teams are what's going to propel everyone's enjoyment and the the success of the company. Absolutely. And the more camaraderie, the closer you feel with your team members, the more likely you are to lean in and, and really advance the company's mission. So I think stories and giving people an opportunity to share their stories is a great way to build team camaraderie. And the next question we got here is, how do you keep a conversation interesting and lively for hours with a person with whom you have nothing in common, i.e. at a dinner party where you do not leave the table for a long time without sounding fake or like you're trying too hard. And obviously getting to stories and and getting the information that you need to write your articles, there are going to be moments where you may not have much in common with the person that you're interviewing. Do you have any tips in that department, Laura? Well, in my conversations to get Uh, For what I do, I'm always asking questions and I let people talk and then I ask more questions. Everybody has a story, even if they might not know it. Everybody's got a story and you can go beyond the, you know, what do you do? You know, you can ask something else like, you know, what's the most interesting place you've ever been, you know, or or something beyond like what's your job? Because we all get and that's kind of all the icebreakers, you know, what's the weather and what's your job? But I think if you ask people a more interesting question, like where's where's the most interesting place you've been or what's the, you know, oddest situation you've ever found yourself in or, you know, something like that. I I think maybe to draw out the stories that people don't know they have in them. Yeah, I completely agree. I think everyone has experiences and stories to tell. Oftentimes when we find ourselves in a conversation that's dying where we have nothing in common, we're not using the right questions to open up that conversation. And certainly we don't have to talk about stuff that we don't know anything about. I think that's uh, a fallacy that a lot of us, especially around strangers, fall into, that we feel like conversation has to be very linear and we have to stick to the topic at hand. When you think about the fun conversations that you have with family and friends and people you're really close with, well, they actually jump around quite a bit from thread to thread and they're not necessarily linear. So don't feel like you have to be forced to have a long, boring conversation about something you don't know anything about. Instead, exactly that. Ask some questions that are about people's experiences, things that excite them, things that they have as great memories, uh, childhood experiences as well as a great opportunity to get liven up the conversation even if you don't have something in common. Yeah, stories have great power. As we know from your podcasts, and they can be very compelling, hopefully, to change what's going on in the medical community. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today and helping us answer some of our listeners' questions. And where can our listeners find your two fantastic podcasts? 
anywhere that there's podcasts, uh, anywhere you can listen to a podcast, any podcast app. Uh, iTunes is the most um, uh, the most popular. If you have an iPhone, there's an app for podcasts. Uh, you can listen on your com- on your computer. You can uh, listen on Stitcher. You can listen on Castbox. You know, any podcast app will will play uh, Bad Batch and Doctor Death. And what's next for you? Do you have a a third podcast in the making? I don't know. Uh, nothing yet. I'm looking around for ideas. All right. So I, I haven't settled on anything yet. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Here's another question we got. I'm curious, how do you guys go about balancing how much you invest into others? I've noticed that many times I invest something into others, whether it be time, interest, favors, etc. Then they don't reciprocate it and I end up feeling bad in the end and feel used. Should those things be withheld? I'm not sure how to approach things like this. Thanks. This is a great question. And, there's and a, we get this a lot. Oh, yes, we do. And if you go back to our value episodes, those value episodes talk about what you need to do in order to feel good as a human being. We all need attention, approval, and acceptance. And that is fired off through uh, all the good chemicals, dopamine and oxytocin and all that stuff. And we search that out. It is a drug. It allows us to feel good. And we look for those things. However, when you put how you feel in other people's hands, it's going to be difficult to get out of that mindset. Now, here we have somebody who is doing a favor for somebody who's who's adding value and now looking for that value to come back. That is a transactional, low-value mindset. And in order to break that, you have to go from a scarcity mindset, which uh, our question, who holds it, is from. The person who wrote this is in a, in a scarcity mindset because he's looking at things on a one-on-one transactional basis. And he needs to move that over to an abundance mindset. And there is a lot of work that you need to do in order to create this abundance. And it's a process. And it begins with your daily activities. But the most first and foremost is to go from rather looking at the one person that you gave value to waiting to get it back. It is giving value out to a, a group of people as to the whole of everyone that you're coming in contact with. If you look at it as, as a larger perspective of all the value that you had given out, you're going to get value back and you're going to get it back in little ways that a lot of times you're not really expecting and you're only going to see it when it comes that way, when you've given it out to a lot of people The the problem with giving it out on a one-on-one basis is a lot of times the value you're getting back isn't coming in the same form that you gave it out. So it's difficult to, to see that. I think another important thing to keep in mind is that when it comes to giving, we can't be generalists and just give everyone everything all the time. Oh. And that sounds a little bit like what's happening here. The smart givers are the ones who understand what energizes them, what allows them to feel good when they give that to someone else. It might be introductions. It might be help on a business plan. It might be helping people practice for a job interview. And that's something you're really good at. And when you give that to someone, you feel really good. You feel great. So understanding and playing to your strengths when giving value is also important here not just giving everything all the time to everyone else. And it should never come to the detriment of your own health and well-being. So understanding that 
yes, of course, when it comes to being generous and being a giver, there are going to be people who take advantage of you, which is why we don't want to overgive and give everything to complete strangers. We have to at least understand that there are levels to our giving. And the smart givers who get ahead are the ones who understand what energizes them and the gift that they can give that allows them to feel good regardless of what they get back in return. And you remember last month, we talked to Karen Wickery and she talked exactly about exactly. this. She spends her morning. What does she do? Well, she high fives people virtually on social media. Mm -hmm. She celebrates them, gives them a little bit of information. These are not things that you would beat yourself up over if someone didn't like your comment back or someone didn't respond to your message. And when you make that a habit, well, of course, it's not going to be something that drags you down and makes you feel like you're being taken advantage of. But when you give everything all the time to everyone, you do set yourself up for that failure. So being a little bit more specialized in your generosity will help. I want to also say that no one is born with an abundance mindset. It is cultivated. It is built. And it's a process. You come out right into the world in scarcity mindset. And you have to break that. And that scarcity mindset has been programmed into your DNA of, of survival, first and foremost. And this is what a lot of people don't understand. They get so upset with themselves when they see themselves getting upset when they don't get the approval from somebody or, or any of this kind of stuff. It's wrong. You want to fix that, but you shouldn't beat yourself up over it. If you haven't done the work to shake off that old mindset, it's, it's going to stay there. And this is why it comes back to when it comes to the art of charm, and the stuff that we talk about on this show, it's a lot of people go, I wish I would have learned this when I was 21. Well, you're learning it now, and that's better than never learning it. And so some people learn it early, some people learn it late, and some people never learn it. And if you're stuck in that scarcity mindset, it's going to continue getting in your way until you do something about it. One of the things that we always say is, you know, how many times that people talk to us and are like, oh, well, you know, I can do those things to, to get out of this, but I don't have the time. Okay. Well, you'll, you're going to give us, you're going to write, you're going to ask me about this again in about a month. Why? Because in about a month, all the reasons that you asked me about it in the first place are going to build back up right, and you're going to find there. yourself at the end, uh, at the end of your bed with head and hands going, I need to shake things up. I need, this cannot continue. Hey, can I get 10 seconds? If you've been enjoying the show and learning something of value each week, your next step might be coming out to LA for a week-long boot camp. Imagine diving deeper and becoming a top performer with advanced social skills of persuasion, influence, and connection. I'd love to chat with you. Head on over to theartofcharm.com slash apply if you think you're ready. Here's another question we got, and if you kept a close eye on your email inbox, you may have spotted that I sent out a survey last week. Full disclosure, we were all a little bit blown away by the amount of questions that came in. We won't be able to address each one of them, but here are a few more. Here's one on the influence of social media. Is technology, social media, and the world being so small because of the internet bringing down the caliber of people these days? <laughs> it seems that there's less integrity, less honesty, less follow-through, and even less understanding of the importance of these qualities and others like them. I think, for me, that... 
the more you try to live your life online and on social media, the more you're going to feel this way, the more frustrated you're going to feel. I but agree. The more that I spend unplugged from social media in connection, in conversation with real people in person, the more fulfilled I feel, the less that I feel that the caliber of people has gone down or this all this fake stuff that we're seeing on social media. And unfortunately, it is empty calories. We've talked about this on the yes. show time and time again. The, the science it's is there. The perfect snapshot of other people's lives that are meant to play with our emotions in the negative. And it can lead to depression. As we're seeing, tech CEOs are not allowing their children to go on social media. The people who built these platforms aren't allowing their kids on there. What does that tell you? Now, it doesn't mean that the caliber of people is somehow changed in humanity. It just means that if you put all of your focus on social media, well, you are going to come up feeling a little empty. Yeah, and this is, you know, one of the the things that we probably don't really do a very good job with is our Twitter, right? And I, I mess with it. I try to post something every day or retweet somebody. But Twitter as a platform is, to to me, it's just people yelling all day. And trying to yell louder than the next guy for in the attention economy. Oh, you could say that. Facebook and Instagram's all the same. It's trying to get those likes. It's trying to get that attention. It is. It's a lit, but it just seems to me a little bit different in Twitter, where it's just the more outrageous you can be, the 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 more attention you're going to get. And even people who who we look up to that we've even had on this show, you know, like you know, Eric Weinstein, who we've had on this show. I, I, every day I go on Twitter and he's, he's arguing with somebody else. I'm just like, I can't do it. And, and, and what's funny about this is if you spend a lot of time there, how can you not get pessimistic with the world? And for us, we're always trying to, build mindsets that allow us to enjoy life and to, to be creative. And it's, it's easy to go to social media. First thing to check your notifications and get bummed out within five minutes. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I don't think it's brought down the caliber of people. I just think the people that are on the apps the most and shouting the most may not be the people that you want to spend the most time with in real life. I agree. Here's the last one for the day. Lately, I find myself dwelling a lot on falling out with a close friend many years ago whom I haven't spoken to since, and I have no desire to. I try to suppress these thoughts, but they keep coming back. How do I let the past remain in the past? Huh, that's a good question as well. Um, well, there's a, there's a lot to this. Yeah, I think there's a couple things, right? If this is coming up again and again, it in my mind means that you haven't fully processed it and you haven't been able to move past that relationship. And there are many ways that you could process something. You could spend a lot of time journaling, yep. doing some self-reflection yourself. You can go see a therapist and talk about the relationship. And you could do the one thing that you said you didn't want to do, which is you could actually just be the bigger person, reach out and apologize and see if that person has changed or grown in any way. What is the, what is the one thing that all three of those uh, have in common? You, well, you, handling yourself. You dealing with the problem. Yeah, and right now, what we're doing instead is trying to suppress. Right, I try to suppress, and it's not dealing with the problem head on. 
So those are three ways. We talk all the time about journaling. There's a self-authorship program that we've recommended from Jordan Peterson as well mm-hmm. uh, to really be deeply reflective about these events in your life. Um, therapy helps. We've recommended talk therapy on the show numerous times. And lastly, being the bigger person. It's been a number of years. You've grown. Maybe that person has grown too. And maybe it's time to fully bury the hatchet and move on. Well, it's, it's certainly not going away without you dealing with it. Before we get to the weekly challenge, here's a shout out to John, who just finished his boot camp with us. John wrote us, went out to dinner before my flight at a place in Venice Beach and got sat at a communal table. The old me would have buried my face in my phone, eaten in silence, and felt awkward the whole time. Instead, that table was mine. I chatted with everyone, made two new friends, and a great conversation with a lovely woman seated next to me. And I saw people looking shyly at me from down the table, like they wanted to be a part of the fun. Everyone was laughing, beaming smiles, and having an awesome time. The staff were bubbling as they saw me out the door. I feel like I added so much value to everyone's evening. It really is magical when you can start to change your behaviors and see these opportunities that in the past, you would have done just that. Mm-hmm. Hopped on social media, hopped on your phone, and not try to chat with the person next to you. Congratulations, John. I know it was a fantastic week, and we're excited to see what the future holds. And that's really the power of getting these social skills in order so that you can start having more fun, living your life, and connecting with people. We'll be seeing John at the Mastermind in December. Absolutely. Oh, while we're at it, here's a question that Michael sent in about our training. Thanks, AJ. I just found your podcast on Spotify and I love it. I teach introductory sales at a small university and the skills you teach are the difference between getting a foot in the door and not. As for me, I'm trying to get my 16-year-old daughter to embrace the importance of these skills and confidence mindset. The homepage indicated that you work with males. Would it be helpful for her as well? Absolutely. We get this question a lot. I know For a decade plus, we worked solely with men, but we do work with men and women, and we encourage everyone to share the podcast with their friends, family, and anyone else you care deeply about. Here's our challenge for the week. Now that we've wrapped up our month on storytelling, let us see where you're at and get some feedback. Record a one to three minute video of you telling a story. If you're part of the free 10-day challenge, then go ahead and post it up in the Facebook group. By the way, if you haven't joined the challenge yet, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash challenge and do so now. If you've already gone through one of our programs and you're part of our premium group, then post it there. Johnny and I, as well as the rest of our coaches, look at every single post, and we'd love to give you some feedback on your storytelling. If not, you can just DM us on social. We're always looking forward to seeing and watching your stories. In fact, we're always excited to hear from you. You can send us your thoughts by going to theartofcharm.com slash questions. You can email us, questions at theartofcharm.com, or find us on social media, at The Art of Charm on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. If you're new to the show, but you want to know more and what we teach here at The Art of Charm, listen to the toolbox at theartofcharm.com slash toolbox. That's where you'll get the fundamentals of networking, persuasion, and influence, such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, and including some episodes on building and maintaining relationships. We've got boot camps running every single month here in sunny California. Details on those and more at theartofcharm.com. Exactly. We'd love to have you, much like John, become one of our successful alumni. Also, could you do us and the entire Art of Charm team a big favor? Could you go on over to iTunes and rate this show? It really would mean the world to us, and it helps people just like yourself find it. The Art of Charm podcast is produced by Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery and engineered by Sam Jay and Bradley Denham at Cast Media Studios in sunny downtown Hollywood. Until next week, I'm Johnny. And I'm AJ. I hope to be healthy by next week. All right. You're a bad boy. You're a bad boy.